Today's what we call Palm Sunday. And this isn't like National Donut Day or some other made up day of the year. If you were to actually look at a physical calendar, it's nationally recognized as Palm Sunday due to its connection to Easter. From Palm Sunday to Easter, Sunday to Sunday, it's what's referred to as Passion Week. Easter is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Good Friday is to remember his death on the cross. Palm Sunday is also significant because the events of that Sunday marked the beginning of Jesus' formal march toward the cross and ultimately the empty tomb. And so this morning, we're going to look back at the events of that day and seek to understand its bearing on us today. All four gospel accounts include what happened that Sunday, but we're going to anchor ourselves in Matthew's account. And so I'm going to ask that you would join me in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. If you do not have a physical Bible and would like to use one, um, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. And uh, you could either borrow that or if you would like, you can take that as our gift to you. And if you're not familiar with your Bible and you're wondering where is Matthew, uh, it's the very first book of the New Testament. It'll be in Matthew chapter 21. It'll also be on page 826 in the Pewback Bible for your cheat code. So Jesus and his disciples are making their way toward Jerusalem. All roads would eventually lead to Jerusalem for God's plan to unfold. And that brings us to Matthew 21. And we're going to read the passage in its entirety, the first 11 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put, their cloaks, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now at first, this might seem a little odd, the different things that we read about here. Right? Jesus saying that, hey, go to the disciples, go pick up a donkey. I'm going to ride it into Jerusalem. And, and the people shouting Hosanna and all these different things, like following him, almost like a paparazzi of some kind. And they're laying their cloaks on the road and their palm, palm branches on the road. It might seem a little odd at first, but it's not an understatement to say that everything that we just read bears major significance in the history of the world. When Jesus and his disciples entered cities up until this point, it was, it was done subtly, just as anyone else would enter into a city. And so what we read here wasn't the norm. Jesus is announcing his arrival with a purpose. And it starts with his mode of travel. 
right? Normally they would just walk into cities, but here he purposefully rides into Jerusalem. Again, he says to two of his disciples, hey, go to this nearby city, and what you're gonna find, because Jesus is, by the way, Jesus being God, he is, he's displaying his sovereignty and his omniscience. That means he is all-knowing. And so he says, you're gonna go into this city, this specific city, to this precise location, and here's exactly what you're gonna find. You're gonna find a donkey and her colt. Bring them to me. Oh, and by the way, someone is gonna ask you a question. Hey, if someone's trying to steal my colt, I'm gonna say the same, I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? He says, they're gonna ask you what you're doing, and, but when you tell them that the Lord needs them, they'll, they'll let you go. And so Jesus is exercising his sovereignty here, saying not only am I gonna tell you the precise location, I'm gonna tell you exactly what you're gonna find, and oh, by the way, I know the hearts of the owners, that they're gonna ask you, but then when you tell them that the Lord needs them, they'll let you go. He's displaying his sovereignty here, that this is what's happening. If you tell them that the Lord Jesus needs them, they'll let you go, and that's exactly what happens. But why? Why does Jesus choose to enter the city this way, right? So different than any other time. Is he just showing off? Is he just showing off his sovereignty and that he knows all? And so when the disciples come back and they're like, you told us, and he's like, called it. Is he, is he just simply showing off? What's the purpose? Well, Matthew tells us the purpose in verses four and five. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, that is Zechariah, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. So Jesus is entering Jerusalem this way to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And more than the other three gospel authors, Matthew in particular, he regularly references Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled because his primary audience is made up of Jewish people who would have been well acquainted with the Old Testament. So think about this, right? Jesus obviously is well acquainted with the Old Testament. And so as he entered Jerusalem in this specific manner, who would make up the crowds that saw him doing so? It would be the Jewish people who again were also well-versed in the Old Testament. And they would have been looking for a sign like this. The entire hope of Israel was centered on the coming Messiah, which means anointed one. It means savior. So when they see Jesus entering Jerusalem this way, it would have set off all kinds of alarms for them. And, and really, this is just one of many of what we would call messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Many, many prophecies that spoke of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills. This is just one of them. Up until this point, Jesus had not been this public about being the Messiah. Not because he was nervous or not because he feared being able to live up to the mantle of Messiah, but because it simply wasn't the time to reveal himself this clearly. But on this day, that changed. This is Jesus very publicly and formally announcing that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the direct fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that Israel's humble king was coming. Which, by the way, was made a whole 500 years prior to this day. Jesus is fulfilling a 500-year-old prophecy. He's announcing it to the world. Conquering kings, they normally entered the city mounted on a horse. 
Well, Jesus is a conquering king entering the city, but instead of arriving on a horse, he comes with gentleness and humility, riding a colt, which is also a symbol of peace. And so though he enters as a conquering king, this is our first indication that he's coming as a different type of conquering king. And we'll circle back to that thought shortly. But how do the people receive this momentous pronouncement? Well, as Jesus enters as the coming Messiah was prophesied to enter, well, the people acknowledge him accordingly. Look back, verses eight and nine. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and other cut, others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so what do we see them doing? Everything that they do bears significance. Them spreading their cloaks on the roads. That's, that's an ancient way of, of, of uh, giving homage to a king, showing respect to a king, honor to him. The waving of palm branches is it's a sign of hope for the coming Messiah. The very fact that they're ch- chanting, Hosanna. You know, oftentimes we, we sing it in a song and sometimes we hear it around you know, kind of the church, but we don't really know what it means, and it means save, save now. Bring us salvation now. Save us, we pray. And when that's paired specifically with the fact that they say Hosanna, as in save us now to the son of David, the son of David is a title that only the Messiah bears. It's a messianic title. And so when they say save us, Messiah, that bears significance. The people respond, affirming Jesus' claim to be their king and Messiah. And proving this further is the fact that they, what they chanted, it wasn't even entirely their own words. They're quoting Psalm 118. It reads, save us, we pray, O Lord. That should sound familiar already. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so the crowds recognized him as their coming king and Messiah. And it drew so much attention that the people of Jerusalem were questioning who this was. Who is causing this commotion? Who are all these crowds bringing? And they say, who is this? Who is this? They would eventually find out that he's much more than a prophet from Nazareth. What happened on this day was historic And as we celebrate and remember the significance of Palm Sunday, we are drawn to who Jesus is and what he came to proclaim. And we see that the people responded as we should, in praise and in worship. But this day also comes with a warning. Because immediately after that, um, this is Luke's account, immediately after Luke records the events that we just read, He follows up with these words in Luke 19. And when he, being Jesus, drew near and saw the city, that's Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
What? Why is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and its people? The people are, are praising him and acknowledging him as the Messiah. So how can he say that they don't know the significance of the day? And further, how can he tell them that Jerusalem will be destroyed? Well, remember that Jesus being God is all-knowing. Jesus knew, like just as he knew, the exact location of the cult and that its owners would question but still give over the cult. He knows what's really in our hearts. These people, they outwardly praised him and welcomed him as their king, but he knew that it was superficial. He knew that they didn't fully grasp the significance of that day. He knew that the very same people chanting Hosanna to the son of David less than a week later would be chanting crucify him, crucify him. The very people that he loves would send him to the cross. From Sunday to Friday, something changes. Why do the people turn from praising Jesus to calling for his death? Because they expected him to be something he wasn't. And they rejected him for it. The people of Israel did expect a Messiah. They expected a conquering king to deliver them from the oppression of the Romans and to establish an earthly kingdom for God's people. They expected to be liberated so that they can worship their God freely without any hindrance. I mean, even the disciples, those who were closest to Jesus, they were stuck thinking along these lines. Just before Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts 1 after his resurrection, they ask him if that would be the time when he would restore the kingdom to Israel. The people expected a physical kingdom in an earthly king. Well, Jesus is a conquering king, but he rides in with gentleness and humility. Jesus would free them from the oppression, but first and foremost, from the oppression of sin and death and not immediately the oppression of Rome. God's kingdom is being established, but it will only fully be realized when Jesus returns the second time. They ultimately turned from their praise to rejecting him and calling for his death because he did not meet their expectations. They had this picture of Jesus in their minds that did not match who he really is. Does this perhaps show us that we can acknowledge Jesus for who he mostly is, but still reject him? Does this show us that we can sing songs about him and call him Lord, but have a flawed and inaccurate expectation of what that lordship entails? They had the right words. They even had the right outward actions, right outward acts of worship. But it was with the wrong hearts and with the wrong expectations, and it led them to reject him. I mean, even 2,000 years later, if we are careful, we can fall into the same error. And so I pose the same question that they asked at the end of this passage for us this morning. Who is this? In other words, who is Jesus? Or to personalize this, who do I believe Jesus is? Jesus asked this question to his disciples earlier in Matthew, in fact. He says, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And he's referring to himself. That's a title for himself. 
And they respond, well, some say John the Baptist is back. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or some other prophet. And he goes, okay, but who do you say that I am? This is an important question. This question matters. And it's not an understatement to say that this is the most important question that we will ever be asked. Given its importance and how we see the people respond here compared to how they will respond five days later, there are a few conclusions that we can draw. The first is who we believe Jesus is determines our expectations of him. Who we believe Jesus is determines our expectations of him. Now this might seem like an obvious statement at first, but it helps us understand what led them to their rejection of him and how we might avoid the same error. Flawed belief leads to flawed expectations. Right belief leads to right expectations. They believed that the Messiah would establish an earthly kingdom and restore Israel to glory, and for this to happen in their time, it meant that Rome would need to be overthrown. Because they believed these things about the Messiah, they naturally expected Jesus to deliver. The problem is that what they believed about him was not entirely accurate, which in turn led them to having equally inaccurate expectations. Perhaps they believed what they believed about the Messiah because it's what they were taught. Perhaps it was their interpretation of what they were taught. Or perhaps they allowed what they desired to influence what they believed. They desired an earthly king to free them from the oppression of Rome and establish an earthly kingdom. And so perhaps some of their flawed belief was birthed out of what they desired to be true rather than what was actually true. And this plays out the same way for us today. I mean, here's a kind of a silly, simple example, but if I don't believe that Jesus ever existed at all, well, my expectations will match accordingly. Actually, I will have zero expectations, won't I? If I believe that Jesus did not exist, well, then I will have zero expectations for him. If I believe that Jesus was a good moral teacher, I will expect him to give me good advice when I want it, but demand very little of me otherwise. If I believe that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the expectation is that he will bring me peace. Do you see how it works? It's very simple. What we believe about Jesus determines our expectations of him. Further, our expectations of Jesus will make or break our resolve to follow him. Flawed belief leads to flawed expectations. Flawed expectations lead to expectations not being met. And expectations not being met leads to rejection. Think about it. If I place the wrong expectations on someone or something, they're obviously not gonna meet those expectations because they're not meant to. They're set up to fail from the start. I mean, let's, let's make this real practical. Let's say I buy a treadmill and I commit to walk on it for 10 minutes every day for a month. I believe that treadmill will help me lose weight, which is correct. But let's say I expect to lose 40 pounds in that month from walking on that treadmill for 10 minutes a day. What's gonna happen? I'm not losing 40 pounds, I'll tell you that right now. My expectations will not be met. 
Because though I believed rightly that walking on the treadmill will help me lose weight, I believed wrongly that it would happen in the exact way that I planned. And so that treadmill doesn't meet my expectations. I'm selling it. I'm done. I don't want it anymore. Once again, the people, they rightly believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But they wrongly believed that it meant that he would establish an earthly kingdom right then and there which then led to their expectations of him not being met. And when he did not meet their expectations, they rejected him. When he doesn't meet our expectations, we do the same. But listen to me. Jesus has never failed you. Not once. He has never failed me. It's impossible. It is incompatible with who he is. And so I say this boldly as a matter of fact. Jesus has never failed. What has failed are the flawed expectations that we have placed on him. I'm convinced this is why so many people have sought Jesus and are open to learning about him, but eventually they walk away. This is what the crowd did in John 6. We're told that they crossed the Sea of Galilee seeking after him, but when he took the opportunity to teach them hard truths, we're told that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They expected following Jesus to be easier than that, and when they learned it wasn't, they walked away. Many seek Jesus not realizing there's a cost, and many know Jesus and forget that there's a cost. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He also says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his brother and sister and wife and children and yes, even his own life, they cannot be my disciple. Now, for clarity's sake, he's not talking about a literal hate. He's talking about a lesser love. He says, you cannot commit yourself to any earthly family above me I am the top priority. Later on in the same passage, he says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's not saying go sell all of your possessions. He says, do not commit yourself to anything that you own above me. Nothing that you have is more valuable than me. You cannot be my disciple unless you place me above everything else. There's a cost He doesn't demand all of this from us because he's a selfish tyrant of a king, but because he loves us and he knows knows and wants what's best for us. For us to withhold any aspect of our lives from him is self-sabotage. Perhaps you believe that he is savior, but do you also believe that he is Lord? Perhaps you believe that he is both savior and Lord, but What do you expect him to be Lord over? Lord over the earth, yep. Lord of my life, yep. But all of it, not just some of it. Some walk away from Jesus because they expect that they'd only have to surrender certain aspects of their life to his lordship. And when they learn that him being Lord means surrendering the part of their lives that they wanna hang on to themselves, they walk away. Perhaps you believe that he's the prince of peace and so you expect him to bring peace. But does that peace come as the absence of suffering and difficult things? 
or in the midst of suffering and difficult things. Jesus does not promise that we will not deal with sickness or trials or suffering and other effects of sin. There is going to be a time that's coming when those things will be wiped from existence, but that time is not right now. In fact, he says that we should expect those things, but to take heart and have peace in the midst of tribulation because he has overcome the world and we overcome through him. People walk away from Jesus because they think that following him, it means the absence of struggle. Do you expect him to deliver you from something that he has never promised to deliver you from on this side of eternity? That's not on him. That's not on him. But if we believe that he is both Lord and Savior and Prince of Peace, that he's Lord over the entirety of our lives, Savior from the penalty of sin and death, and our peace in the midst of suffering, the result won't be disappointment and rejection. It couldn't be. The result will be genuine life, joy, and freedom that he offers. And that's worth following. It's worth the cost. The last conclusion that we can draw is who we believe Jesus is doesn't change who he actually is. Let me explain. I can believe that pigs can fly. That doesn't mean that pigs can actually fly. I can believe that pigs don't fly. And even though I believe the right thing about pigs not being able to fly, that still doesn't affect whether pigs can fly or not. Because truth is not truth only when everyone believes it. Truth is not truth only when everyone believes it. When Jesus approached Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, he announced himself as the Messiah and Savior of the world. The pronouncement has been made. He would go on to defeat sin and death, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. Period. End of story. It has been declared. And this is true of him, whether the whole world showed up shouting Hosanna, or it was just him riding on the colt alone. It would be true regardless. In Luke's account, Jesus said that even if the crowds were silent, the very rocks would cry out. He does not need our acknowledgement. We do not make him who he is. He makes us who we are. He does not need our affirmation. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, period, end of story. Paul reminds us in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All will bow before Jesus, whether it is willingly in worship or begrudgingly. We will all recognize him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So once again, I pose the question, who is Jesus? Who do I believe Jesus is? It is the most important question you will ever ask. Do you know the real Jesus? Or do you just know some Jesus that you have made up in your mind? A Jesus that you have placed expectations of him that he has never declared to be true. 
Do you know the real Jesus? You can. We can be certain that we know the real Jesus because he has given us the word. He plainly tells us and shows us who he is right here. So we must know the word. Knowing this, meditating on this, will set us on the path to right belief, which will lead us to having the right expectations of him. And it's in that place where we truly know him and worship him for who he is. So who, he, who is he to you? Who is Jesus to you? And when I say to you, I don't mean, you know, whoever you want him to be. Like, who is he to you as if that ultimately matters? Because remember that who we believe him to be doesn't change who he really is. Who is he to you as in this is personal? It's personal. Every single one of us as individuals, we have to make a judgment call and we will make a judgment call on who we believe Jesus is. And who we believe Jesus is determines our expectations of him. And our expectations of him will make or break our resolve to follow him. Will we be like the crowds in Matthew 21 who would eventually reject him? Or will we respond like the disciples in John 6 when Jesus asked if they would walk away from him like the rest of the crowd did at that time? How did they respond? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and, ha- and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? As Friday looms, let's resolve to follow him there. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you in this moment, this morning, and we acknowledge you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What you declared over 2,000 years ago, that you are the Messiah, that you are the Savior of the world, it stands to be true today. That truth does not change. God, would we be in tune with that? Would you turn our hearts towards that truth? Would we be people who sees you for who you truly are and expect what you declare will come to pass? Exactly that, to come to pass. May we be people who are of your word and so we know exactly who you declare yourself to be and what you will do and that we would not place expectations of you that are made up in our mind because Lord, we acknowledge that you can never truly disappoint us. It's just the expectations that are wrongly placed on you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know the real you, who has rejected you, who has avoided bringing their lives, surrendering their lives to you, would you melt their heart even now to acknowledge you as the savior of their life, the one who has paid the penalty of their sin, that they may live for you. And for those of us who do know you, Would we worship you in spirit and truth? Would we worship you for who you truly are? Because you alone are the only one worthy of that honor and praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. 
For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.